Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Sandra Busby. Sandra is the owner and founding director of the Welsh Contact Centre Forum, an industry-led forum providing support to over 200 employers in Wales. Sandra, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us, Sandra. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So first and foremost, if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word leader actually mean to you and how does it resonate? You know, Scott, it's a really um, interesting question. And it's interesting because of the, of the strange times that we were in. And as a forum, we've um, focused on leadership um, in different guises over many years and what it means to people in representing both small businesses and global businesses. It means so many things to different things to different people. But for me at the moment, um, what I'm seeing is that the great leaders are adaptable. So I think adaptability... We've always talked about that over the years in terms of what that means in um, operating a business. Um, But I think that leaders are put under extraordinary pressure at the moment. And if they haven't got that ability to adapt quickly, um, that will define the companies. And I think that um, that will show us which companies will survive and which companies won't. So leadership can mean lots of things, Um, you know, typically setting that culture from the top that comes down, leading um, an organization and ensuring that everybody is with you and there's one message in communication. There's so many things that we could discuss here um, from, you know, the different culture that is set within organizations that begins at the top. Um, but, but that adaptability now is crucial and all of the skills that they have to draw on, um, particularly in communication with their people will be vital. I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying there. Adaptability is going to be incredibly important going forward for the longevity of uh, businesses, absolutely. Um, in terms of the Welsh Contact Centre Forum, just putting in, um, that into context for a second, Sandra, um, how have you found it adapting to meet the challenges that this pandemic has posed? Because I can imagine even for you as well, it's been a real challenge. It's it's been a real challenge for us. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, although we have a very wide network and we have a very strong um, board, um, in terms of numbers of people, we haven't got huge people. We work on a different model with lots of associates and lots of suppliers. And one of the key things for me is, um, as a leader, is to ensure that we come out of this and we recognize it's not just the full-time employees, but the other small um self-employed people that rely on us. So one of my key things is to make sure that there's as little disruption to their lives as possible. Um, We were able quite quickly to um, get from home. I think on the 20th of March, everybody was from working from home. There were some technical issues that panned out over the next week or so. But relatively speaking, the the key concerns then are you you have to park your productivity issues initially and the key concern is people's well-being and safety. 
Um, and ongoing, that is going to cause some issues. And I'm going to go slightly off the track because really what I'm looking at now is if I'm going to have a mixed model of working from home and working from an office, then before too long, and it will be compounded for global organizations, there will be health and safety issues. Initially, now my biggest concern is the mental health and well-being of my guys, but that is the concern of all of my members, um, or at least the great leaders are concerned about that and are concerned that um, people are healthy and they're, they're as happy as can be expected in this environment. Um, but it is an isolating situation, and we've already started to see some major issues with people who are suffering at home. So I think it's, you know, we got home relatively quickly, but the, the, the key now is where we go from here. Um, as a business, the forum itself, um, it, you know, I'm looking at forecast, doing financial forecasts, a tenth of what we were looking at before lockdown, and I have to manage my way through that. But we're a strong business and we've built up reserves. And those reserves are there for this purpose. Um, so as a leader, it's the long-term sustainability. How do I bring us out of this and protect as many people as possible that work for us and with us? And dwelling on the issue of the mental health and well-being of these um, individuals, Sandra, I'd be interested to understand as to how some of the forum's members and staff have actually um found it um from your point of view um in terms of this pandemic because we've heard some very inspiring stories nonetheless despite all the difficulty of people who've really gone above and beyond during this period and adapted to their new ways of working just to keep things ticking over and have you been just as inspired by the response that you've seen from those around you or has it been a little bit more challenging than that um it's been both the companies that were really good at the people engagement piece and if you've got um Contact centres have always had a reputation of, um, you know, a higher churn of staff, but we've had some amazing companies, you know, over the last 20 years who've done some amazing things in the people engagement space. The trick has been how do you now adapt that to a virtual model and an online world? One of the things that um, we as a forum very, very quickly put some training on for coaching and mentoring virtually and engaging with staff virtually and, um we were inundated by people who wanted to send their team leaders on that because it is, and that's heartening for me because that shows that they are taking this issue seriously. So the companies that were doing great uh, people engagement initiatives and that had mental health on their agenda um, and um, had been driving that agenda and all that, those diversity issues and mental health, they are doing quite well. We're seeing some great stuff. Um, they're using different technology platforms, but, um, you know, if you've got 10,000 people and you've got middle managers and, and junior managers, um, as long as the correct message is coming from the leadership, then somebody who's looking after 12 people can be quite creative. And the other good thing for me is that we're seeing business as usual. I had a meeting with 14 companies last week on diversity and inclusion and recruitment. And if the diversity agenda will slip through the net because there are all the other issues to be looking at. Um, but a whole host of the conversation with some great initiatives that companies were doing around Pride because it's Pride Month in this month. So we're starting to see companies looking at what the new norm is and not letting the great stuff 
um, now go by the wayside because we're in an extraordinary time. Um, so it's good that we're, and, and as a forum, we've had demand on us to bring these topics back um, to our members and to set up those vehicles. So we're seeing fun days, we're seeing team meetings, we're seeing companies sending out um, chocolates or gifts to their guys, you know, which is no mean feat when they've got thousands of people just to say thank you for working with us and, you know, bear with us and hopefully we'll get back to some norm. I think one of the main challenges now is who do you bring back to work and when? Because somebody with mental health issues may want to get back to work, but if they've got any underlying other health conditions, companies cannot take that responsibility of bringing them back into the workplace, which won't be as safe as their home. So it's all of those issues that they've got to balance. Of course, and there's been some uh, very different opinions about the clarity of guidelines for bringing people back into work um, as well, and also what is required of COVID-secure premises. Um, For the future itself, um, do you think that there has been enough clarity on that guidance? And overall, what do you actually envision for yourself and for the forum, Sandra, as we move through the pandemic, hopefully emerge from it and really begin to look forward to the long term? I don't think To answer your first question, I don't think it's clear. I think that it's fine to put in one set of um, rules and regulations, but there's a big difference between a contact centre that's operating 50,000 square feet on one floor to somebody who's in a legacy high-rise building um, and that has people with disabilities that have to use lifts. So using the lifts to go up and the stairs to come down is not always feasible for anybody with any physical ailments. So I don't think there's been enough thought and clarity, and it's far more complex than people think. The one great thing um, that has come out of this is that we've been um, battling on homeworking for at least 10 years, and of course people have now fast-tracked this and proved that the model can work. So I think coming back, we're going to see a much more agile. um, We won't see a one-fit-for-all because businesses are so vastly different, but we will see a lot more flexibility in home working. That will, of course, then question what people do with property and, you know, companies that have a huge um, legacy of big buildings all over the the UK and the globe. Um, But the home working is a positive. The other positive that's come out of it, and there's always winners and losers, is the fast tracking on the digital proposition. We've been looking at automation chatbots, digital workforces, how do you integrate a digital workforce with a human workforce? And of course, again, people have had to fast track this. When you lose a third of your workforce overnight because a country closes down all of their um, contact centers, then you have to look at that digital operation. And where you've seen companies with um, bureaucracy and trying to get anything through that takes nine, 12 months. But again, they, I've seen companies fast track that. So, you know, some of the tech companies are winning here, which is great because we want businesses to win so that we can keep the economy going and keep the wheels turning. So there are some positives, the home working and the integration of digital and the automation, which frees up your existing workforce to do complex transactions. Um, I've no doubt that um, we have to be agile as a forum to keep, um, you know, all this new stuff in front of our members, but also not forgetting the great stuff that they're doing um, and the great stuff that they need to do for their people uh, to keep the workforce engaged and productive. 
Certainly going to be interesting uh, times amid all the uncertainty for business, uh, Sandra, isn't it? And I think, you know, given how informative it's been having you on the programme today, I think it would be great if at some point in the next year we could even catch up and have you back on the programme just to discuss at what stage business is at and even maybe review just how that economic recovery is expected to come along as well at that point. I think that would be hugely informative from a listener's point of view. I would love to and it's been a pleasure. Likewise, Sandra, it's been a real pleasure having you on the programme today. Um, It's been a real shame that we've just about ran out of time. Otherwise, we could carry on well into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, But most importantly, until we do touch base again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the meantime, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. You too, Scott, and uh, my best wishes to you, your colleagues and your family. Likewise, Sandra, do take care. Bye-bye now. That was Sandra Busby, owner and founding director of the Welsh Contact Centre Forum. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. After his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium, 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff, and that is coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it, and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me and realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you, you're very... Fortunate, I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course a great manager in Sir Alfred. So to come across people like that of that calibre, 
can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life and my family 
we've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm-hmm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not 
you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey, or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we... Um... Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think, um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, 
you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but. There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck that's absolutely. that's absolutely leading show he'd be the best example of course in, in football terms today uh, easily easily and of course but going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time a short period of time but if you look at the 25 26 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they've they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah. Well, the, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back. Uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that, so many. yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. 
uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. And there was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. It, we have some great players, of course. But without the attitude uh, alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind single mindedness, dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.